Welcome to our 133rd podcast and the 103rd as a City on a Hill Church, recorded November 7th, 2019 at our Thursday evening service. Pastor Mike opens the whole of Philippians chapter 2, spending most of his time on the first half of that chapter. He's entitled this message, Becoming More Like Jesus the life goal every Christian should have. Here is Pastor Michael Clark. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. You may want to silence your cell phones. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, when we read in our Bibles the word therefore, you always have to go back to the prior point that was made or the prior thought that is being talked about. Because again, in the original uh, parchments and scrolls and letters, Uh, there were not verses and chapters. The Bible translators have given us verses and chapters in these books, so it makes it easier for us to look up a verse or to study through the Bible uh, as a reference point. We know where to find certain topics or verses or books because it is broken up for us by chapters and by verses. But in the original, there is no chapters, there are no verses, it's just one letter. And so when we see a chapter break, like from chapter 1 to chapter 2, that's put in there by the Bible translators and the the scholars and theologians. And we see the word therefore referencing something that he had said previously. So we really need to go back because it ties ties back into the last chapter. And we could pick up uh, in verse 27 of Philippians 1, to, to kind of carry the thought forward into chapter 2. So Philippians 1.27, Paul says, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, now here to be in me. Then he says, if therefore. And so with all of that in mind, he's telling them, Conduct yourselves in a good manner. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul's saying whether I'm there or whether I'm not there, I want to hear the reports that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so apparently there was division in this church. And if there wasn't division in this church, Paul wouldn't be bringing these points up about division and and selfishness and... Uh, those who are preaching out of uh, uh, greed or, or envy or jealousy. Uh, so he is exhorting them to maintain a good witness. 
maintain a good testimony, whether he's there or not, uh, reminding them that we have uh, one body. We're the body of Christ. And so we should have one spirit, the spirit of God. We should have one mind, the mind of Christ. If Christ is the head of the body, then we should be like-minded because he's the, he's the, the head of the body. So we should have the mind of Christ if we are in Christ. And then we would have unity in the body of Christ and not division. And, and division, as we're going to look at here, is often a result of selfishness. People having their own agenda. People having their own self, uh, uh, you know, sort of self-promoting agenda in the church. And then you get a bunch of people that are all self-promoting. They're selfish. Uh, they're, they're covetous. They want something that they don't have. They want a position that they don't have. And you get a bunch of people, then they start fighting over the positions in the church and fighting over who's the most spiritual and, and, and who's, you know, who's got the most gifts and, you know, people, uh, kind of falling over each other or stepping over each other to get to a certain position or place or ministry or office in the church. And it's, it's, it's really a, a very sad thing to see because that uh, totally mars the body of Christ and it, and it misrepresents Christ to the people who come in the doors on Sunday morning and to the people who are outside these doors. Because on a, on a bigger scale, this is also true for all of us as Christians universally around the world because we are one body. And so the enemy understands this and the enemy tries to divide us because through division, he can conquer or he can at least weaken through division. A house divided against itself cannot stand, Jesus said. And so Satan's not stupid. He's been doing this a long time. He knows if he could bring division into the church, especially into the local body, uh, then he could pretty much nullify the effect that that church is going to have as a witness to the, to the society, to the world, because everybody's too busy competing with each other and fighting with each other in the church. And then you're not reaching out and you're not loving others and showing them uh, the love of Christ. So if Christ is the head of the body, we should be like-minded because he's, he's the head. He's the one who should be controlling uh, our minds in the sense of, you know, we want to yield our will, our minds to his will and to his mind. In verse three, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So now he gets into kind of the, the, the problem that was apparently happening here in this church. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And so he's saying, don't, don't be selfish, don't be conceited, but be humble and regard others as more important than yourself, esteeming others higher than you esteem yourself. And that's very difficult for us because we think pretty highly of ourselves. We all do. You know, it's human nature. And it's hard for us to not think highly of ourselves. Even sometimes when we feel sorry for ourselves, oh, woe is me, it's because we think so highly of ourselves that we're pitying ourselves. We feel so sorry for how things are going for us. And even that is a false sense of humility. In reality, uh, it is it is self-pity because we're not getting what we want. And so, oh, woe is me, you know, poor me. And, and so uh, he's telling us, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. 
I, I like the examples that he gives in verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And, and that's good. I mean, these are things that we should want for ourselves and for our church. Encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and compassion. But selfishness and empty conceit prevent that from happening in the church because everybody is worried about themselves. They're self-centered instead of Christ-centered or God-centered. In chapter 1, he was already addressing this in verse 15. Paul said, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. Verse 17, he says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And so he's saying there are even those who are out there preaching the gospel, preaching Christ out of a motivation of jealousy or envy and strife to cause division. And, and it ought not to be that way. That's the opposite of, of who we are to be as Christians. We're not to be self-serving or, or, or competitive or jealous with one another, selfish ambition. Um, and, and we're supposed to have pure motives, but, uh, you know, nothing really changes. There, there still is to this day, all over around the world, all over the internet and everywhere else, people that are jockeying for positions, even in the ministry, even in the pulpits of the churches, uh, and, and their motivations are selfish. Their motivations are self-centered. And, and oftentimes, uh, they do tremendous damage. They become like Pharisees, where you begin to become everybody else's judge. And, you know, you're the standard of righteousness. And, and if only everybody was like you, what a wonderful world this would be. Instead of how lowly you are, how wicked you are, what a terrible person you really are deep down, if you know yourself, you're honest about it. We're all terrible deep down in our flesh. And the only goodness I have is the goodness of Christ. And, it, and I, I want people to be like Jesus. I don't want them to be like me. Now, if I'm following Jesus, I could say, follow me as I follow Jesus. Uh, but if I'm, you know, doing ministry out of selfish ambition, uh, or, you know, out of envy and strife, then I'm not really following Jesus. I'm setting my own course and I'm trying to be the master of my own faith. And I'm trying to take the church as kind of my own. And that's a very dangerous thing. And it's, it's a very negative thing for you as a Christian, for me as a Christian. And it's, it's a very negative thing and, and harmful thing to the church as a whole, uh, the body of Christ. It's how the enemy uh, slithers into the church. And uh, like I said, he, he understands if he could divide, he can, he can conquer. He could take a church down. And many churches have fallen as a result uh, of exactly uh, these warnings here. In, in Revelation chapter 2, there's this great church. If you read the first part of Revelation chapter 2, the seven letters to the seven churches that were in Asia, uh, Jesus is dictating this letter to this church in Ephesus. And he says this in Revelation 2.2. Jesus says, I know your deeds and your toil or your work and your perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false and you have perseverance 
and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And so if you just read that description of this church, you would think, man, what a wonderful, active, profitable, busy church. I would want to be a part of this church. You know, uh, perseverance, enduring for his namesake, not growing weary, not enduring evil men, uh, testing people who call themselves apostles, and uh, good deeds, hard work. What's not to like, right? I mean, it looks like it's a, a list of a great church that you and I would want to be a part of. But then Jesus says this in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. So they're doing all these works. They have a name. They're, you know, the church of Ephesus was a very well-known church. Uh, uh, Timothy was the pastor of that church for, for quite a while, uh, who Paul the Apostle is going to reference later in the book of Philippians. Uh, it was a very well-established church by the time Jesus was dictating this letter in the book of Revelation. And it was a very well-respected church. And yet Jesus is saying, you have departed from your first love. You're doing all the same things that you used to do but your heart is not in the right place anymore. You've left your first love. You've left, you've departed from your first love. He says in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And that's the warning to any church, is that if the Lord takes His lampstand away, takes His presence away from a church, that church is dead. You may have a name, you may have people there, you may have a pastor, you may have a music minister and a sound man, but that's a dead church once the Lord departs from that church. And this is what the warning was. He's saying, remember, repent, and return. Go back and do the things that you did at first. And so it is a warning to every church. It's a warning to all of us as Christians that, you know, we, we have to have the right heart, the right motives for why we do what we do. It's not enough just to do the good works. Our motives count. Our motives matter. If we're doing it out of selfishness or out of jealousy or out of selfish ambition, uh, it, it's better that we not, uh, pretend that we're doing it for God or for Christ. So the key here, guys, is humility. Because humility would say, I haven't arrived yet. Pride would say, who are you to tell me anything? You know, who do you think you are? You know, that would be a prideful response. And, and it's like, humility is like Jesus. Uh, pride is like the devil. The devil was a prideful being from the beginning because he was so beautiful. He was so talented. He was so gorgeous. Uh, when, when he was Lucifer. And, and so he is uh, filled with pride. And pride is what led to the fall of one-third of the angels because of Lucifer's pride, saying, I could become like God. I want to be worshipped as God. And then he brought that down to man when he tempted Adam and Eve uh, to disobey God. Pride. And so uh, pride is the opposite of the character of God. God is love. And Jesus is humble. Jesus said, learn of me, Matthew chapter 11, for I am meek and lowly and humble of heart. So if Jesus is meek and he is lowly, he, he puts himself low. He doesn't esteem himself high. He puts himself low and he's humble. That's how Jesus defines himself. That's God in the flesh. Then who are we to be prideful or boastful about anything? Anything, especially if we're Christians. 
especially if we're serving the Lord. And, uh, you know, I wish that this wasn't true in the church, but it is true in the church. It's true in the church. And, and it ought not to be. This ought to be the stuff that you find out in the bars and in, you know, the, 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 the coffee rooms of your workplace, not in the church of Jesus Christ, the blood-bought church where people are, you know, clamoring over each other for position and for title and for, you know, uh, wanting to be seen and heard and known and get their name known. It's, it's the opposite, uh, really. Humility would be to, to put yourself lower and allow the Lord to raise you up. Allow Him to exalt you. Not that you exalt yourself or I exalt myself. In 1 Peter in chapter 5, we studied through 1 Peter about a year ago. 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says this in verse 5. He says, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. And so if you want to be puffed up with pride and envy and self-righteousness and piety and all these things where you start to judge others and compare yourself to others and think more highly of yourself than you ought to, you are now going to be opposed by God because God opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. I would rather be the one that God gives grace to, not the one that God opposes, but so many. You know, because they're, they, they just can't see the big picture and they want what they want now and they, they are going to achieve it regardless of what they have to do. Uh, um, they then put themselves in a position where God is opposing them because of their pride. And pride does come before a fall. It may take a while, but eventually those who are prideful, especially if they claim to be Christians, especially if they're in the ministry, eventually the fall will come because that's what, if there's no repentance, uh, pride comes before a fall, but humility comes before honor. In Philippians 2 and verse 4, Paul continues after he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This goes hand in hand with the golden rule where Jesus said, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so we love ourselves. We all love ourselves. No man hates his own flesh, Paul says in Ephesians 5. We all love ourselves. Uh, that's not the question. Uh, but we're supposed to love others like we love ourselves. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat others exactly the way you would want to be treated. And, you know, even uh, Gandhi, a Hindu, picked up on this in India and, and basically said, this is true. It's the, it's the truth. This is a timeless truth that Jesus taught. Treat others the way you want to be treated. You know, if, 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 if it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the whole world will be blind and, and not have any teeth in their mouth. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If we're just exacting revenge with each other, Jesus said instead, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give your cloak 
also. And this is, this is what we are called to. It's a high calling and, and it is, it is a calling of humility. Constantly having to humble ourselves, even in our own, especially in our own minds, in our own thoughts. We think too highly of ourselves. We can't help it. So we have to keep looking at Christ and seeing ourselves in the light of Christ. And then you realize you're nothing and you deserve nothing. Only Jesus is worthy. Only Jesus is holy. Only Jesus is the one to be modeled after and followed after. And His life should be exemplified and modeled in our lives if we carry His name and we call ourselves Christians. We take His name upon us. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, Paul says this, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And so there it is again. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. And so it's it's a theme uh, from the very earliest days of the Christian church and certainly a theme that runs through the whole New Testament about Loving others as you love yourself and putting others above yourself and myself. In verse 5 of Philippians 2, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And again, what is the attitude? It's humility. Humility from verse 3. That's the attitude that he's telling us uh, that we should have. And again, Matthew 11, Jesus said, uh, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly and humble of heart. And so we look to Jesus. He models humility for us. You don't know what humility looks like? Read the Gospels. Read the life of Christ. Study Jesus. And you will learn what the epitome of humility is. And not only did Jesus model humility, Jesus was a perfect man. We're not perfect people. We're sinners. He had no sin. And yet He was still humble. He still had patience with people. He still had patience with People coming to him at all hours of the day and night. They didn't leave him alone. And some of them were going to be the ones that were going to kill him. They were going to say, crucify him, crucify him. Some of them were like the nine lepers. He healed ten and nine of them didn't come back to even say thank you. After he healed ten lepers, only one of them came back to say thank you. And yet he still healed the other nine. He knew they weren't going to say thank you. They weren't going to be grateful. Uh, and, and so that is a high calling. And that's what we are called to as well. Uh, in the church and as Christians, esteeming others higher than ourselves and uh, having this attitude, this attitude of humility in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so let's, let's look at each of these verses individually here, but it's kind of one sentence. That's why I read it all together. So we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about having the attitude of humility, uh, not being uh, selfish and not being conceited. We're uh, talking about regarding others as more important than ourselves. All of this is the context. 
And then he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that word translated uh, form in verse 6 it could also be translated, and sometimes it's translated, nature. So in, in a definition of this word, uh, form or nature, he existed in the form of God or the nature of God. Here's a definition for that word. The inner essence or reality of that with which it is associated. So when the Greeks would use this word and they were saying that something is like something else, it's the same form or the same nature with something else, making an association. What, what the original language means is it's the same inner essence or reality of that with which it is associated. So what is being associated here? Jesus Christ is being associated with God the Father. So Jesus is the same as God the Father. He's the same nature. He's the same inner essence. Essentially, Jesus and the Father are the same in essence. That's what that word means. And of course, we know that Jesus claimed to be God. We looked at that when we did the Trinity study. We looked at uh, some of the verses about Jesus and His deity last week. Um, but in John chapter 5, just a couple of examples of where Jesus claimed to be God and, and they knew that He was claiming to be God. In John chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus says, My Father is working until now and I myself am working. Now, it was in the, it was in the uh, question of Jesus' uh, healing on the Sabbath day. We read in verse 16 of John 5, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus, the unbelieving Jews, were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was healing people on the Sabbath. And it got the attention of the religious zealots, the religious Jewish leaders and the Jewish uh, Orthodox and so forth. And, it's, and He says, My Father is working until now, and I Myself am working. And verse 18, it says, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So the cults just miss this when they say Jesus never claimed deity. Jesus never claimed to be God. If that was true, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus because they took him and they crucified him. The Jews did, the religious high priest and the scribes and Pharisees, because he was claiming to be God. And they said, you're blaspheming by making yourself God's son. You're therefore making yourself one with God, equal with God. You're healing on the Sabbath day. Only God could break the Sabbath day. And you're breaking the Sabbath day. And of course, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath day. They just didn't understand the Sabbath. Uh, healing somebody is not working. But he, he was declaring that he himself was one with his father, and they got that, and that's why they killed him. That's why they had him killed. The Romans killed him, but it was uh, the religious Jewish leaders that conspired uh, to have Jesus killed for the sin of blasphemy, which was a capital punishment among the Jews. And Jesus uh, did claim to be God. In John chapter 10, one more example, in verse 30, Jesus says this, He says, I and my father are one. 
Again, the same inner essence or reality of that with which it is associated. Jesus is saying, I and my Father, we're one. We're the same. We're equal. And then their response was, in verse 31, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, took up stones again to stone Him. And Jesus answered them and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning Me? And the Jews answered Him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed that He was God. He said, I and my Father are one. He said, if you have seen Me in John 14, you have seen the Father. I'm equal with the Father. If you've seen Me, Philip, you've seen the Father. You don't need to see the Father to know what He's like. You've seen Me. And if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. If you know Me, you know the Father. Because Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God the Father in His nature, in His character, in His essence. In the book of Colossians, Paul the Apostle declares this about Jesus and His deity. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says this, For in Him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9 For in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity, the Father, God, the Trinity, dwells with Him in bodily form. And so, Jesus, Paul is saying, Jesus is the fullness of God. You can't get any more full of God than Jesus was. He was completely full. Fullness to the nth degree. Jesus couldn't have been any more full with the deity than He was. He is God the Son. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul says this of Jesus. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. Remember, God is invisible. He's a spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. He doesn't. God the Father doesn't have a body. He's, he's a consuming fire. He's a spirit. But Jesus took a body. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn or the preeminent one of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. Only God can create. Jesus Christ is credited with creation here, even as He is in John chapter 1, even as He is in Hebrews chapter 1. So you have Colossians 1, John 1, and Hebrews 1 all say that Jesus created everything. He's the Creator. Only God can create, therefore Jesus must be God. He is before all things. This is what it means when He says He's the firstborn of creation. He's the preeminent one of all creation. He's the most important one of, of all creation. Uh, he's the one that created all creation, He went on to say in the next verse. Uh, in, in verse 17, uh, or verse 16 rather, for by Him all things were created both in heaven uh, and on the earth. So He is the preeminent one of all creation. Uh, he... Uh, created all things, they're all created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things. And in Him, all things are held together. 
And so Jesus literally holds all of our world together. He's before all things. So, you know, if Jesus was born and he started life like the rest of us with a human birth, you wouldn't be able to say he's always been around. You wouldn't be able to say that he created all things. You certainly wouldn't be able to say that he's before all things. Because you'd say, well, then the universe was before him. And, you know, uh, the thousands of years of human history was before him. And Adam was before. I mean, you, you know, chronologically, if Jesus was just born at, you know, 1 AD, where we started our calendar for his birth, by the way, um, you wouldn't be able to say that he's before all things. But he is before all things because that wasn't his start. He existed from eternity past and he took on a human body to come and to live and dwell among us. So he's before all things, Colossians 1.17, and in him all things are held together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have preeminence in everything. He is preeminent in everything, even in the first one to be raised from the dead in his resurrected body, even as we will all one day be raised from the dead with a resurrected body. Verse 19 of Colossians 1, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The fullness of what? Of who? The fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2 9. So the scriptures teach that Jesus is God. The cults really, really, really have a, a problem and the Jews and the Muslims when they deny the deity of Christ because you don't, you know, you may not want to believe it, but you can't say the Bible doesn't teach it because the Bible does teach it that Jesus is God. And then you have to deal with what you're going to do with Jesus. So in, back in Philippians 2 again, in verse 6, who although he existed in the form or the nature or the inner essence of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He never had to, he never sought out to prove that he was equal with God. You know, when, when you look at his life, he wasn't competing. He wasn't trying to prove anything to anybody. He just was who he is. He's God's only begotten son. He's the second person of the Trinity and he's the creator of the universe, the creator of everything, of you and me. And he's the savior of the world. But he didn't have to prove anything. He didn't ever have to try and prove that he was equal with God. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to try and prove. He just is equal with God. That's who he is. Verse 7 says, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. When he emptied himself, he did not empty himself of his deity. You, God cannot ever stop being God. That wouldn't be possible. God couldn't decide, I'm not going to be God anymore. I'm going to become a man for 33 years and then I'm going to become God again. You know, God is always God. He can't change. I change not, the Lord says. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. So it, when he says that he emptied himself, of course it doesn't, this doesn't mean he emptied himself of his God-ness you know, or his deity. That, that, that's not possible. God can never cease being God. He's always the same. So when he says he emptied himself, what does that mean? Well, he emptied himself of all of the privileges that he had of being the king of heaven and all the universe. He emptied himself of the position that he had, his throne. He came off of his throne in heaven to come down here to be born of a virgin 
in a stable with sheep and donkeys and to live as a man. So he emptied himself of his position, of his privileges. He emptied himself of his power. He didn't have any power before the Holy Spirit came upon him. He laid aside his power, his position, his throne, his glory. He laid all that aside when he became a man. That was a choice he made. But he never stopped being God. That would be impossible. God can never stop being God. He became a man took the form of a bond servant, a slave basically, and, and was made in the likeness of men so that he could then fulfill the law which man could never fulfill. Jesus fulfilled the law. He kept the law his whole life. He never once sinned. He was not a lawbreaker. He was not a sinner. He had no original sin because uh, he was born of his Father and the Holy Spirit. That was his father. Uh, and his mother was a, was a virgin. And so... He had no original sin, and then he had no practice sin. His whole life, he never sinned. They couldn't even uh, accuse him of sinning. The only sin they accused him of was that he claimed to be God by claiming to be God's son. But that was true. That wasn't a sin. It was the truth. They just couldn't accept that truth. They couldn't handle uh, that, that he was God and that he was God's only begotten son. So Jesus came to fulfill the law as a man and then to die as a substitute on the cross of Calvary for all mankind. And because He's God and He's eternal, whatever He does is eternal. And so He died once for all sins, for all time, for all men. He didn't have to die over and over again. He doesn't have to be offered again and again on an altar every Sunday morning at a church where they have the sacraments and they say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And, and they believe that on that altar that Jesus is once again dying and He's once again uh, uh, being sacrificed for the, for, for the sins of the people that are there. That's not at all what the Scriptures say. Jesus doesn't have to die again. He died once. And because He's God, His one death atoned for all the sins of all the world for all time. If you just believe on Him. And you'll accept His salvation and His forgiveness. So Jesus came as a man. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He fulfilled the law. And then He took sins that did not belong to Him. And He died for those sins on the cross. He took the sins of the whole world upon Himself and died and took the punishment on the cross of Calvary so that we could have our sins forgiven. Either we're going to have to go to hell and pay for our own sins for all eternity, or we can accept Jesus' free gift of salvation because He paid the price for your sins and for mine. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. And any rational, intelligent person would want to take Jesus and His sacrifice so that you don't have to go to hell and pay for your own sins for all eternity. Again, why is, why is hell and the lake of fire, you know, go on forever and ever? People say that's really not fair. It's not right that God would send somebody to hell for all eternity. But guys, when you sin once against an eternal God, that's an eternal sin against an eternal God. So there's an eternal judgment. It's just the way it is. Whether we want to like it or not or accept it or not, it's the way it is. And so Jesus came to do everything He could to save mankind. And yet, people still curse Him and cut, use His name as a cuss word and spit on Him just like they did on the cross. Not much has changed. In verse 8, he says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he, he laid aside, he was willing to lay aside uh, uh, his, his um, privileges and his power and his rule, his throne, and, and he was willing to come and to die as a man, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was with God, John 1.1. The Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He created all things, verse 3. All things came into being by Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This is the Word. Who's the Word? Verse 14 of John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus became a man, and he, he really became a man. He was human, although he was still God. He was fully man, fully human. That's the only way that he could take our place and die in our place on the cross. He had to be a man in order to pay the price of the sins of all men. He was fully man, but he was also fully God. This is the, the miracle and the mystery of the incarnation. And yet, although he was a man, he was without sin. He had no sin of his own that we did, he would have ever had to die for. He's the standard of righteousness that God accepts. Remember, the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, Jesus said, of righteousness, because I go to be with my Father, you no longer behold me indicating that this is the standard of righteousness that will make it to heaven for a man. Perfection, sinless perfection. And so unless you're as righteous as Jesus, you can't get to heaven on your own. You have to go through Jesus. You have to take His offer of salvation, the free gift of salvation, repenting of your own sins, turning to Jesus for salvation, and being born again by the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 4, and verse 15, we're told about Jesus being our great high priest. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And so Jesus understands what it's like to be a man. He understands what it's like to be a human being. And yet, the difference is Jesus never gave in to sin. He was tempted. The devil came to him to tempt him in the wilderness. Uh, but Jesus never sinned. He said, I always do the things that please my Father. I have come, in the scroll of the book it has written me, I have come to do thy will, O God, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us. And he did come to do the will of his Father, always did what pleased the Father. And so because he was sinless, he could then be a substitute for the rest of us sinners by taking our sins and then being punished on the cross for our sins. So you talk about he's Paul's trying to give the example of humility versus conceit and envy and jealousy in the church and pride. You know, it's like who do you think you are? Look at Jesus. Look what Jesus did for you. Look who Jesus is. And and if Jesus was humble and he's God, he made the universe and he's humble as when he came as a man, that's what identified him was his humility. Who are we to be boastful? or puffed up with pride in any way, shape, or form. Verse 9 says, Therefore also God highly exalted Him 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So because Jesus was willing to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. I mean, to this day, uh, uh, the name of Jesus is known all over the world. And the name of Jesus is a name that is above every name. And, uh, and one day, uh, everybody is going to bow before him, before King Jesus. We're told that in a minute here in the next few verses. But in John chapter 17, as Jesus was praying his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed this to the Father in John 17 and verse 4. He said, I glorified thee on the earth. This is Jesus praying to his Father right before he's going to go uh, and be betrayed and, and, and crucified. He says, I glorified thee on the earth having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. Jesus came to finish the work that God the Father gave him to do. Verse 5, he says, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I'll read that again. Glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus is eternal. He had glory with the Father before the world even existed. And people say Jesus never claimed to be God. I think He's claiming to be God right here. He has no beginning. He's always existed. He was with the Father. He had glory with the Father. Only the Father has glory in heaven. And yet Jesus had glory with the Father before the world began because Jesus and the Father are equal. I and my Father are one. And so here we see that prayer being answered. Jesus prayed this to His Father in John 17 that He would have His glory again that He had with the Father before the world began, before the world was. Jesus wants to be in that place again where He has that glory again. And we read that in verse 9 of Philippians 2, that this is answered. Therefore also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. His glory that He prayed for has been restored to Him. He's now back in glory. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He's back on His throne. And He is there uh, as the Savior of the world and as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Philippians 2.10 says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So every knee one day is going to bow to Jesus. And you could choose now to bow to Jesus willingly, or you will bow to Jesus, you'll be forced to bow to Jesus and declare this. Uh, against your will, I guess, because everybody's going to have to say this in all creation, all the intelligent beings of the universe who've ever lived, even those who are in hell, the, the powers and principalities, the demons, the devil himself, they're all going to have to bow before Jesus on that day and they're going to have to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we could either say that now as His people, and we could declare Jesus as the Lord of our lives, 
and give glory to God the Father because of Jesus Christ and what He's done in saving us. Or, you know, there'll be those who will refuse to do that now and they'll use Jesus' name as a cuss word and, uh, you know, use Jesus uh, for whatever they can get out of Him or from Him uh, or from His people. And then on that day, they're going to have to say it through gritted teeth where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, because of bitterness and, and, and pain and regret for all eternity in hell and in, in the lake of fire. They're all going to have to say this. Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Those in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth. Now, it's interesting that this is actually a prophecy from Isaiah 45. Again, we looked at this when we were doing the, I believe it was when we did the Trinity study, but Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23, which is where this uh, quote comes from, from the Old Testament. As I have sworn to myself, Isaiah 45, 23, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me, God is speaking, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Isaiah 45.22, the verse right before that says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn to myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me God is saying, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. So now the New Testament is saying, this is actually speaking of Jesus. That this is going to be said of Jesus because Jesus is God. In verse 12 of Philippians 2, we read this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So now we've looked, we've looked to Jesus and we've looked to Him and His example of humility. And, and now Paul is saying, um, you, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence, but now more in my absence, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it doesn't say that you work for your own salvation because we know we can't earn our salvation. There's no works we could do to be saved. We just have to believe on Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and His resurrection. We have to accept His free gift of salvation. As a matter of fact, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle, the same author of the book of Philippians, says this in verse 8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10 of Ephesians 2 says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But our works are not what saves us, James would say faith without works is dead, but the works that come out of our lives are evidence of our faith. We don't work out, you know, we don't work for our salvation. We work out our salvation. Now, when you work out, what are you trying to do? You're trying to do better. 
you're trying to be stronger and athletes trying to be stronger and faster and better at his game. So you, you work out, you practice to, to do better. And so he's saying, you know, work out your own salvation. Work hard for Jesus. You're saved. So show it. Show through good works that you're Christ, that you belong to him. Let your light shine. And as you let your light shine, people are going to glorify God because of your good works. So we can't work for our salvation. We're never called to work for our salvation. Even uh, the rite of baptism or communion, that can't save you. You, you, don't, you know, Paul the Apostle said, I'm glad I baptized none of you, he told the church of Corinth, or, or didn't you know, hardly baptize any of you, he said. I think he baptized a few because they were they were uh, comparing who baptized them. I'm of Paul or Cephas, and I'm of Apollos, you know, and I'm of 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 uh, uh, Paul uh, also, and um, and and so you know Peter or, or 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 Apollos or Paul, they were competing with who led them to Christ, who baptized them, and so they were kind of sticking their chest out. Oh well, Peter is the the one who baptized me. And, you know, Peter was Jesus' right-hand man. And Peter walked on the water, at least for a little bit, uh, before he sank. And, you know, and so we said, well, I'm, I'm, I got baptized by Paul. Paul's the most awesome one. He was blind, and then he got his sight back. And he used to persecute us, you know, in the church. And, and, and now he's one of us, and he's a leader. And someone else say, I'm of Apollos. And Apollos was a renowned evangelist and apostle, a preacher uh, in, in the early church. And and, and Paul is saying, I'm glad that I didn't baptize hardly any of you uh, because I don't want you associating your salvation with me. He says, whose name did you get baptized in? Did you get baptized in Peter's name? No, you got baptized in Jesus' name. You know, did, did, did Paul die on the cross for your sins? No, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Therefore, there's not a competition. You know, we're all just servants of Jesus, whether it's Paul, whether it's Peter, or whether it's Apollos. But, but uh, Paul would never have said, I'm glad I didn't baptize hardly any of you if baptism was necessary to be saved. Because that would be heretical. That would be blasphemous for Paul to say, I'm glad I didn't baptize you if baptism was necessary for salvation. So it's not by our good works that we are saved. It's our good works that show that we are saved, that we're abiding in Christ, and that He is the vine, we're the branches, and He's flowing through us. And our works, our good works, are the evidence that we are in Christ and that He is in us. Again, he says in verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So it's like a partnership between you and God. You're willing to serve the Lord and work the works that He wants you to do, and He's willing to help you and enable you and empower you and instruct you and teach you and bring people alongside you that are going to help you to do this, to accomplish this. Um, and, and so it's a partnership between us and God. For it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's, you know, it's kind of like the Bible was written by men, but it was written by God. Those men had to be yielded to God. They had to be surrendered to the Lord for the Lord to inspire the words that He inspired them to write and to pen them down. So was the Bible written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit the author of the Bible? Or is man the author of the Bible? The answer is both. Because God partnered with men to write the Scriptures. They're exactly what God wanted it to say in the original languages. And He used flawed human beings to pin the words uh, that are the words of God. And so Jesus was fully God, 100% God. He was also fully man. Was Jesus God or man? Both. 
50-50? No. 100% God, 100% man. So the same thing is true with you working out your salvation with fear and trembling. That it's God working in you to give you the, the, the power and the wisdom and to equip you to do these good, good works that He wants you to do. And you're willing to do the good works of your salvation out of fear and trembling, humility uh, before God. Verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, which would again indicate that there was grumbling and disputing taking place in this church. Just FYI, that's why Paul says it, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to say it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. And so uh, when he says that you're proving uh, yourselves to be blameless, you're, you're becoming, you're showing yourself uh, to be blameless before God and before man. Blameless and innocent, children of God, proving, showing, demonstrating for all to see. How do you, how do you show humility? You, you show humility to God by showing humility to others, to man. That's how you demonstrate humility. Somebody say, well, I'm humble to God, but I'm not humble to man. I mean, you know, people don't deserve that. I'm far more spiritual than they are. And, and it's like, no, that's pride. Humility before God would be demonstrated because you can't see God. He's not here. But there's people made in the image of God all around you all the time. And so you demonstrate your humility before God by serving others and by being humble before man. And this is how we let our good works shine brightly. Like Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 about being the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14 Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Great name for a church, by the way. City set on a hill. Uh, verse 15, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure or the basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So how do we let our light shine? By doing good works before man. That's how we let our light shine. Let your light shine before men in such a way they see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Verse 16, he says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ... I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The Bible here is called the word of life. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory. Uh, we, are, we are to be those who greatly uh, revere the word of life, the word of God, that we uh, see it as something that is necessary for our spiritual growth. You know, uh, there's a little saying, seven days without God's Word makes one weak. And it's very true. Seven days without God's Word makes one weak, very weak, spiritually speaking. 
And I've mentioned it many times. Some people think that Sunday morning is enough. 45 minutes, 50 minutes of the Word on Sunday morning. And they're good for the rest of the week. I know it's not enough for me and I'm the pastor. I teach the sermons. I spend many hours preparing those messages. Sometimes many, many hours preparing those messages. Uh, and that's still not enough for me. I still need to get into the Word every day. And, and so... Uh, you know, we, we need to see God's Word as food for our spirit, food for our souls. It feeds us. Just like you need food every day, you need water every day, you need God in your life through His Word to speak to you every single day. And I know many of you are in the Word every day, and I commend you for that. But then there's many others who are not in the Word every day in Christendom and in the church uh, all over America and all over the world. I mean, guys, we have no excuses. There's certain countries where they don't have Bibles. You have to smuggle Bibles into them in Muslim countries. Or they don't have it in their language. Or there's only one copy of the Bible for the whole tribe uh, in some, you know, uh, indigenous people in Fiji or somewhere. Uh, or in Papua New Guinea. And there's you know, hundreds or thousands of different dialects that are not uh, written languages. They're only spoken languages. And Bible translators have gone over there and they've labored for decades to give them the New Testament. One New Testament in their language that they could read, but then they have to teach them how to read because they don't know how to read. Here we are. We learn how to read. We learn how to write. We have a bazillion different choices of Bibles available to us. And, and many of us own, you know, we own dozens of Bibles in our house, and yet we don't crack the Bible open one day during the week on our own outside of church. A lot of churches, they don't even bring their Bible to church. I'm glad we do. I, I've never gotten into using the overhead with the Scriptures, even though that's great that people put the Scriptures on the overhead. But what, what it does to me is that you're, you're training people not to bring their Bibles when you're putting it up on the overhead for them every Sunday. They're going to say, well, what's the point of me bringing my Bible? You're going to show me what it says right here anyways. And so I make you do a little more work by bringing your Bible and reading the Bible when I read it uh, or jotting it down so that you could read it later because it's part of the training of getting you into the Word of God. And that's how we learn, actually. We learn better when we read things on our own, we write things out, we speak things. It's a three-way uh, you know, kind of uh, memory that builds into our brains. Verse 17, he says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And so this is why most of the Bible scholars believe that Paul was locked up in the Roman prison at this point and that he was, he was getting ready to die. He also said this in chapter 1, uh, verse 21. He said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed hard from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And so Paul was already, uh, he had already accepted the fact that he was, he was going to be probably dying as a martyr for his faith. And indeed he was. He was beheaded, uh, historians tell us, church historians by Emperor Nero. Verse 18, he says, And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged 
when I learn of your condition. So Timothy was with him. Timothy was a young protege of Paul's, a young pastor who Paul uh, helped to raise up and train up and wrote two beautiful pastoral epistles uh, to Timothy. And now Timothy was with him while he was in this incarceration, uh, probably just there as a companion and, and a friend uh, and, and to minister to, to Paul in whatever he needed. But he says, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. They didn't have email. They didn't even have snail mail uh, at this point. I mean, the Romans supposedly had a post office, but I don't know how, how uh, effective it was um, to get a letter halfway across the known world at that time. So you would hand deliver your messages, and then you'd have to have a hand-delivered message to get an answer back and send it with a person that you trust, a courier who you trust to take it those hundreds uh, or sometimes thousands of miles. And so he wanted to send Timothy there um, so that he could get a report on how the church was doing. He was concerned for them, and he wanted to, to hear from Timothy uh, back when he would go and come back how, how they were doing in their walk. He says in verse 20, For I have no one else of kindred spirit, speaking of Timothy, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, but you know of His proven worth that He served with me in the furtherance of the Gospel like a child serving His Father. Therefore, I hope to send Him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. Verse 24, And I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall be coming shortly. And indeed, uh, Paul, that wasn't meant to be. Paul was not meant to get out of his imprisonment. He was... Uh, he was beheaded. But a lot of good things there about Timothy and his character. Kindred spirit, who was genuinely concerned for their welfare. Verse 25, he says, But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. And I learned that the word, uh, the name Epaphroditus means charming. Even though it's a big kind of strange word to us, in the Greek it meant charming. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need. So Epaphroditus was the one who they sent as a messenger to come to Paul and to bring a gift, a love gift, a financial gift to help him uh, in his incarceration. He says, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So apparently uh, Epaphroditus was dying, and, uh, and it was a very real possibility that he wasn't going to live, and then God healed him. God touched him uh, and healed him. And Paul was thanking God for that, because Paul says, I should have had sorrow upon sorrow if he had died coming here to minister to me. Verse 28, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. So this is the second time Paul's wanting to hear how they're doing. He wanted Timothy to go and tell him, how's the church doing? How are the brothers and sisters there in Philippi doing? Verse 29, Therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And so uh, this is a good man. He's a godly man. Paul is uh, highly uh, uh, admiring him and 
uh, speaking of him, therefore receive him in the Lord with all joy. And he says, and hold men like him in high regard. They're hard to come by, Paul's saying. You know, most of them are not like this, uh, you know, like Timothy and like Epaphroditus. But hold him in high regard, and men like him in high regard. He came close to death. You know, it's interesting that he came close to death just delivering a message. You know, he didn't write the, 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 the message uh, that, that he brought from Philippi or whatever message he sent. He was just a messenger. He didn't, it wasn't his money he was bringing, it was their money. Uh, and, and, and he wasn't out there on the front lines preaching the gospel and almost died as a martyr. But Paul says he was serving the Lord by coming here to minister to me, and he almost died for the work of Christ. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church, Tehachapi, California.